Hey, I'm Carl from Champaign, Illinois. Hey, I'm Dan from Arkansas. I'm Joy from St. Louis. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Paul Feig's career path has been a bit rocky. The first studio film he directed was pretty much a flop. His second didn't take in much cash either. I went hardcore into movie jail. You know, there's this thing in Hollywood called movie jail, which if a movie comes out and it doesn't do well, then they don't let you make movies anymore. So when he got the chance to make Bridesmaids with Judd Apatow, the stakes were sky high. All through that movie, I just kept referring to it as strike three, you know, because I just knew (laughs) it's either going to work or I'm going to literally be just six feet under after this thing. Well, you know, it worked. It's bullseye. Coming up, Paul Feig talks about being a child magician, an actor, and a stand-up, and what finally drove him behind the camera to direct for both film and television. Plus, he'll explain why he likes watching women be funny. It's a little warmer, but it's also can be goofier sometimes, and it's a little more playful. And I just find funny women just make me laugh more than more than anybody. And why he wanted to make his new movie, The Heat, a buddy cop movie starring Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy. Then the very funny Ophira Eisenberg talks about why she used to date so much and so often. My father died when I was a teenager, so that the figurehead of the family that kind of made us feel like we were secure because he was also the breadwinner, that was removed, so the whole thing shattered. So I think by the time I was dating, I was like, can this just be fun? She's the host of NPR's Ask Me Another, and her memoir is called Screw Everyone, Sleeping My Way to Monopoly. Plus, The New Yorker's TV critic Emily Nussbaum talks about a couple of her favorite new shows and why you ought to check them out. All that and more this week on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Paul Feig was a child magician (laughs) and tap dancer and a teenage stand-up comedian. His mother drove him to these activities, so you could see how he might have grown up a little, you know, alienated. (laughs) He spent the 30 years since his adolescence making art from that alienation. He created Freaks and Geeks, probably the best television show ever made about teenagers. He directed Bridesmaids, one of the first studio comedies ever to let women be funny without being second bananas to men, and a monster hit. His new film is perhaps the least alienation marked of his works to date. It's a classic buddy cop movie starring Sandra Bullock as a square FBI agent and Melissa McCarthy as a tough borderline insane city police officer. <laughs> it's tested so well, the release date was moved from spring to summer, and the cast and Feig were signed for a sequel before it was even released. <laughs> Here's a scene from The Heats. Sandra Bullock's character is trying to set up a good cop, bad cop type interrogation, but Melissa McCarthy's character just doesn't have the patience. How long is this going to take? I don't know. Maybe 12 hours, hopefully less. I have, to, I have to find out what drives him. We could just go in there and beat him with a phone book. No, no, no. For so many reasons, no. Okay, you just need to be patient, all right? It is crucial, crucial that you remain patient. It's also crucial that you stop wearing what this are you stupid barrette. What, don't. What just is leave the it. problem with this? I mean, you have one on your head. Yeah, on top of my head like a normal person. It, what is the difference? Just move on. Okay, if you enter that room, you could break the bond that we have created, okay? Just please, please trust me on this one. Okay, do you understand how important this is? Yeah, I do. And you will be patient? I will. Okay. All right. Hello. Coffee? I drink a little more coffee than I probably should. <laughs> That's a phone book going That's the sound into. of a phone book hitting a man in the face. <laughs> yes. And of Melissa McCarthy making an incredibly creative arg sound. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Paul, welcome back to the show. It's It's been quite a long time, probably too long. I, I want to ask you about being a child magician. Yes. When did you start doing magic tricks? Uh, I had to have been about seven, I think. I, I watched a documentary about uh, teenage magicians the other day on Netflix. And the kids were so sweet and exceptionally talented at magic mm-hmm. and so profoundly sad. Yeah. <laughs> 
just it was the saddest thing it was so it was so difficult to watch them just at home by themselves doing these things over and over to impress people and you just want to say like a great way to impress people is to talk to them in real life oh no totally but I mean magic exists to help like awkward kids out of their shell I mean that was what it was for me and uh, because you know what's great about it immediately gives you tons of stuff to relate to people with so you think because not only do you have a physical trick that you can show to people, but then it comes with patter, you know. And the patter is always terrible. It's always just going, kind of like, now, presto changeo, I will do this. But at least it gives you something to say. So you're literally going like, I now am covered. I am completely entertaining. I know what to say. I know what to do with my hands. <laughs> I, re- I read somewhere, I don't remember where, that your dad had a joke file like Milton Berle. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My dad was big into nightclubs. And MCs, he called them. Instead of comedians, they were MCs. Because like I said, you know, post-World War II, when you go to these clubs in Canada, you know, they would tell these nightclub jokes. And he just thought those were the great. My dad loved jokes. He was a collector of jokes. He loved to tell jokes. He was an expert joke teller. I cannot tell a joke to save my life. I'm like a little kid telling a joke. But he could just hold a table wrapped, and he had a million of them. But, yeah, he kept this file. And Because and, when I won the talent show in, the, in my sophomore year of uh, high school, it was because – I showed my dad my act. He's like, well, you got to have some jokes in there. And so he pulled out all these old nightclub jokes that were kind of semi-dirty but in that sort of covered-up way. And I just remembered like the first time when I delivered my first joke, there was like a silence and then all the teachers cracked up. And uh, so I was playing playing to a mature crowd. Did doing magic have that – theoretical effect of bringing you out of your shell actually yeah it actually did it actually did it was um it allowed me to be the center of attention that i sort of thought i wanted to be but yeah with a context to it i started on the the nursing home circuit that was my uh, bread and butter my friend like start about seven years old i you know i had two grandmothers one was much older and she was in a, a nursing home in canada and so i started doing shows there but i'd go with it little crappy magic kit that I had. So all the tricks were microscopic. There was one trick that was literally it was two dice that were about a quarter of an inch in diameter or whatever. You, you flipped them back and forth and they would change different things. So I'm literally up in front of a bunch of octogenarians, this little kid holding these tiny dice between my fingers and going like, look, and it's different things. And they all just smile because you're cute at that point. you know. You're just kind of like, <laughs> so it's like, oh, I didn't realize I was just getting pity uh, response, but I clearly was. Essentially, what you're doing when you're a magician is, like, bothering people. Yeah. Now, they may have volunteered to be bothered by you. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying that all audiences, but especially at the beginning when you're you're just going to walk up to someone. Yeah. Well, they don't know the extent to which you're going to bother them. But that's what. But that's why it was. My dad was kind of brilliant to go like, you got to put comedy into it because if I just stood up and done my stupid tricks, it would have been like you know yawn. But the fact I think it was kind of like people just like sitting through my stupid tricks to get to what's the next semi dirty joke he's going to tell. Did you? When did you start doing jokes that were not uh, you know Milton Berle's joke file joke? <laughs> it, it was when I decided to become a stand up comic. It was around fifteen years old, uh, believe it or not. Uh, it was right at the time when Make Me Laugh, that, that TV show, had come on the air in the late 70s. And um, it, I think it really started the whole comedy club craze because suddenly they were, they were everywhere. And there was – I watched that show and I was a big fan of Steve Martin I knew, and I George Carlin and I always wanted to do stand-up. And that show kind of made me feel like you could do it. Before that, you when you watched Steve Martin and all these pros, you kind of go like, well, that's like watching the Rolling Stones. You go, I can't do that. But then when you watch Make Me Laugh, like one guy, Mike Binder, was from Detroit. So I was like, well, shoot, he, he does it. I can do it. And other guys seemed attainable. So, um, yeah, so, that, so I wrote like an act that was not great. It was really, you know, my version of a stand-up act. I watched Johnny Carson a lot, so it had a lot of New Jersey jokes, which made no sense because I was a kid from Detroit. <laughs> But uh, but that was where I first started going, okay, i got to write my own material. I think being a stand-up comic is one of the loneliest jobs you could have because, you know, I mean, people have, you know, people, people have a local scene wherever they live and, you know, have relationships there. But when you're working, you're usually – unless you live in New York, you're usually working the road and – you know, best case scenario, you might be driving with one other comic. But generally speaking, you know, you're driving from 
whatever, Michigan to Iowa by yourself. Well, it's what drove me out of stand-up. I mean, I was, you know, made my living as a stand-up for five years, and it was always about working towards being a headliner. When I finally became a headliner, I realized I didn't like it because it was way too lonely. I mean, when it was, the road is bad enough when you're like an opener or a middle act because – you know, you, yeah, every week you're living with different people. You don't know who they are. So, you know, this is back in the day. I don't think they do it this way. I think they do more hotel rooms now, but it used to be in the days of the comedy condo. So they'd buy one thing and you had to kind of live like roommates with people you didn't know. You know, it's one week you'd have the greatest week ever. Like you just clicked with the guys you were with and so much fun. And then the very next week you're with a guy you just despise who's just his whole thing is trying to bring waitresses home to sleep with them. And it's just, you know, and that whole it, – it, it's really was an unpleasant thing. So I so I, I, I kind of quit once I hit the status I wanted to hit because I didn't like – the other thing was when you're a middle and, and a, the opener – like the headliner's there and there's a lot of people around and you're kind of watching each other and having fun. When you're the headliner, when you get off stage, everyone's going home. So it's always that thing of like come off like, hey, there's nobody here. And, and I, I couldn't take it. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Paul Feig. His new project is a buddy cop movie starring Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy. It's called The Heat. You were a working actor for a good fair amount of time and mm-hmm. appeared on a lot of sitcoms were in the cast of several shows. I mean, I, I read that you made your first feature film mm-hmm. and were sort of, I mean, it was like a 16 millimeter movie. It was, mm-hmm. um, and you were, you were doing like a campus tour of it mm-hmm. when you found out that in, in between seasons that you had been fired from Sabrina the Teenage Witch or not asked back to Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Yeah. That was the job that should theoretically have been your stable. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm a real working actor and I can buy a house or whatever. Type yeah. Job. Well, that, I mean, that's what finally drove me behind the camera. For years, you know, I'd gone to USC film school for directing and writing and all that. And I, I wanted to be kind of Woody Allen. I want to write, direct, and star on my own stuff. But kept knowing in the, in the back of my head, like, I, I should really go behind the camera. I just think I'm limited as an actor and, you know, whatever. And so it had all these, that was four TV series that I was a regular on that got canceled in their first season. So finally I got on Sabrina, which was a hit. And so, yeah, I was like, okay, I'm going to take this money that I made off here and put it into this movie and then make more next season. And then, yeah, they wrote me out. So it was the thing that really kicked me out of the nest because you go like, wow, I'm finally on a hit show and I still have no control over, you know, keeping the job. But it was great. It's sort of the best thing that ever happened to me because, you know, I didn't want to end up – there's so many guys I was auditioning with um, – who you just see over and over again in auditions who you thought were like really kind of famous or, or taken care of and you'd show up at an audition for like a terrible show and there they are and you're like, wow, really? You you never get out of this, you know, you never graduate from this when you're a character actor and that's all any of us were. You ended up sort of mentioning the idea that you had for Freaks and Geeks to Judd Apatow, who I guess was your sort of comedy buddy, right? Yeah, we were stand-ups together. I've known Judd since he was like 17 years old. You sold the show like immediately upon making it public as far as I can tell. Yeah, I mean, I wrote it as a spec script when I was out on the road um, doing this, this college tour with my movie. And gave it to my wife, and she's like, this is really great. You should send it to Judd. Because Judd had made a deal at DreamWorks the year before. And I didn't even think that they sent it to him. It was really her idea. And then when I sent it, like, 12 hours later, he just called up and said, like, I want to make this. Like, my life changed in a nanosecond. Because the, that year when I was out on the road and with made this movie and was out on this college tour was the lowest year of my life. Because I'd spent all my money on this movie. I couldn't get in any festivals except at this one traveling college tour. And, you know, I'd kind of given up my acting. So I was literally, like, making plans. I was going to go work in a bookstore or something. And uh, Really? Then, for real? Oh, yeah. Oh, 100% for real. No, I, I we were really, you know, I had spent all the money. And, you know, my wife had a job. She was a manager and she was doing okay. But, you know, it was like, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do now because it just felt like everything was over. And uh, wrote this spec script just based on, you know, my my high school days. All of a sudden, it was just—I mean—it was the greatest feeling in the world. You're like, "Wow, it, it happened!" And you know, even if the series hadn't gone, just the fact that we got to make the pilot was so exciting because I finally got something. I'd been writing forever, but I'd never got anything produced other than something you know that short movie that I had to make myself. I, w- I want to play a clip from Freaks and Geeks, which was uh, created by my guest Paul Feig. It's—if um, you haven't seen it—is it such a, a beautiful, funny show about uh, kids in high school trying to figure out what their deal is. Um, it, it, this is a clip where 
uh, Sam Weir, who's sort of the uh, one of the two stars of the show um, and is played by John Francis Daly, is um, walking down the hallway with his buddies. They are the um, they're the geeks of yeah. the title, Freaks and Geeks. <laughs> exactly. Can't wait to get the new yearbook. I'm only going to like girls saying it, so that way when I have kids, they'll think I was a big stud. I bet we'll find out some girls have crushes on us. Geeks, we out! Yeah. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. Real mature. I hate when they do this. I mean, why do jocks think it's so funny? They think cleanouts are funny. They think wedgies are funny. They think swirlies are funny. Where do they find time to play sports? From our from our series finale episode, for which you were nominated for an Emmy, yeah, for writing, yeah, it was nice. You know, one of the things that I think sometimes about Freaks and Geeks today, you know, whatever it is, fifteen years later, there are a fair number of television programs that follow characters that f- feel real, having real emotional lives, you know, in dramatic arcs and so on and so forth. 15 it's hard to remember that 15 years ago it was like well i mean there's nypd blue yeah. was more emotional than most cop shows yeah you know ally mcbeal was kind of doing ally mcbeal was a little was a little funny for a drama mm-hmm. um and so on and so forth <laughs> and freaks and geeks is such an outlier <laughs> that i have i mean i just have a hard time imagining the two of you guys, uh, <laughs> you and Judd Apatow, thinking that it would work. <laughs> I know. The ignorance of youth. No, I mean, it, it, it's a classic case of, like, not knowing the business well enough to not figure out that this probably wouldn't work. But I, I, I was absolutely convinced people were going were gonna, to, you know, just go crazy for it because in my head it was like, well, who wouldn't want to see their most awkward – times of their life played out from a safe distance by other people so you can laugh at it but no people just got very uncomfortable with the show no i remember i think it might have been you many years ago who told me that the thing that kept coming back about the show which is a very you know the show was drawn from the most painful experiences that you and all the rest of the writing staff had had yeah. literally yeah yeah. Wrote them on note cards and put them on a wall, yes, if I remember did. correctly. Yes, we had a therapy session, a two-week therapy session. Um, and uh, that the studio's big note that kept coming back was, "Can't they have more victories?" Yeah, yeah. It drove it drove the head of the, the network crazy. That yeah, it was like they don't win. And I was like, no, they do win. They're they're friends at the end. Of the, they're not dead at the end of the episodes. They won. You know what more do you want? You know, he got really upset when, you know, the the one where um, Sam is, you know, is in love with the head cheerleader and finally he gets paired up with her to go sell yearbook subscriptions and uh, he thinks she likes her and then she confides in him that she's in love with the, you know, the football player and he was like, so there they are and they're in this diner and she's he's finally got the girl and then she said she's in love with someone else. And I was like, well, what, how would our show possibly be good six episodes into our show when our, our head geek gets the girl of his dreams? Like, how is that going to work out? How, how How do I relate to that at all? It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Paul Feig. In 2011, he directed the hugely successful film Bridesmaids. His new project is a buddy cop movie starring Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy. It's called The Heat. You made two feature films, which were uh, neither of which was a success. Your first film was made for a studio that got bought out immediately upon <laughs> you getting the deal to make the movie. Yes. Um, and thus the the studio, I mean, they just, they like released it in like six theaters in yeah. Omaha or something yeah, like that. It was horrible, yeah. Your- um, Little thing called uh, I Am David. And you made, a, uh, you made a movie called Unaccompanied Minors, which I think was actually the last time you were on this show, mm-hmm. um, in, in 2006, I think. Then I went to a witness protection program. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> sincerely, like, uh, Unaccompanied Minors was not a, I mean, it, it was not a colossal, disastrous bomb, but it wasn't a, really a success. No. And I wonder if you just found yourself then i mean just 7 years ago mm-hmm. thinking like oh okay i guess i don't i won't have another opportunity to be a oh, m- yeah. movie director oh to- no i i went hardcore into movie jail you know there's this thing in hollywood called movie jail which you have a movie comes out and it doesn't do well then you, they don't let you make movies anymore and and the weird thing about this was you know, you know i am david was kind of what it was it was it was a drama it was a very weird time in my life my mother had just died and this book 
came along that was about a kid trying to find his mother and stuff. So I think, you know, I, I think I can psychologically be excused for that one. But, but you know, Undercompany Miners came along, and it was really at a time I was just saying, I was directing on The Office, um, like in the second season, which is the one they won the Emmy for. But I remember going, like, I, I would like to try to do a studio film. Like, I've never done, like, a big studio. I also heard the horror stories about it. But I was like, now's the time. Let's let's dive in. And got sent this kid's script. You know, the, the thing is, when you're a TV director and you want to make a studio film, the entryway is family films. That's the, that's I kind of call it almost like the TV director's ghetto a little bit because no serious filmmakers want to make them. And so they'll take a chance uh, on, on you. So I, I went in and, you know, I really had big plans for it. It was, you know, it was based on a This American Life story, you know, which was great about this these kids that got trapped in an airport over Christmas. And it was all about divorced parents and, and things like that. So I thought I can really get this like two layers. I can make it kind of a big John Hughesian, and John Landis a kind of action comedy, but at the same time I can really graft in these the the second layer that like are my freaks and geeks fans will like. And so then I was kind of left with just kind of this, you know, kind of Nickelodeon sort of rump, which was fine. I'm not I'm not ashamed of the movie. I, I actually think it's fun, and I know kids really like it, but it's not what it was supposed to be. And so it was a little bit of this thing of like, oh, wait, I'm in movie jail, but I, I wasn't supposed to make that one. But I've learned over the years now that that's not an excuse. I, I, um, one of my DPs, we were talking about like a famous actress who had gotten her chance to direct a movie and that he had DP. And I said, well, how did it come out? He said, well... You know, it, it was okay. I just felt bad for her because she got stuck with a really bad script. And, you know, I realized, no, that that is a director's fault. Directors do not get stuck with that. If you get stuck with a bad script, you are a storyteller as a director. And it is your job to fix that story and to fix that script to make it work. But that's why a lot of TV directors have a hard time, myself included, making the leap to features. Because in TV, you're used to kind of you work with great writers and they give you the stuff and you can kind of improve it. But you are really kind of carrying out their wishes. And so when you go into a studio, all of a sudden they give you a script, you are in that mindset of like, okay, well, I'll just try to make this as good as I can. Hand, not realizing, no, I could throw the whole thing out if I want and change it, which I did. I did a giant rewrite on, on a company miners, but at the same time, I didn't have the fight in me to kind of, I don't know, everything kind of went wrong on that one. After a break, Paul Feig will talk about why he wanted to make The Heat, a buddy cop movie that stars Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy. It just seemed like the perfect opportunity to have this crossover to men and women where we, we weren't pandering to either one, you know, because there's no jokes like, oh, I broke my nail or I don't know how to hold a gun. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Bullseye is supported by MailChimp, building technology for people and businesses around the world to design and send email newsletters. More at MailChimp.com. MailChimp. Email marketing is for everyone. Production of Bullseye is supported in part by Amazon Publishing with American Spirit, the debut novel from Dan Kennedy about a 40-something man and his comedic vision quest along the edges of modern American living. Available now. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Paul Feig, created Freaks and Geeks. Since then, he's directed a ton of television. He's done episodes of The Office, Mad Men, Parks and Recreation, Bored to Death, you name it. In 2011, he directed the smash hit movie Bridesmaids, before that, his film directing career had stalled out with a couple of duds. What was it like to be, you know, 40-some years old and for the <laughs> third or fourth time in your career have feel like you had come to a dead end on your the things that you I really wanted yeah. to do? It was a great feeling. For, uh, <laughs> couldn't have been happier. But, no, it was weird. I mean, the, the thing was, I, I've always wanted to do movies, and so... It was really upsetting to go like, shoot, I think that part is gone. But at the same time, you go like, you know what? I'm working on great TV shows. I really have a, a good cred in television. So it's kind of like, okay, I'm just going to stick to TV. But it never goes away, that kind of yearning to do it. And it's almost ridiculous now to have that yearning because, honestly, TV is better than movies these days. I mean, the best stuff going on in television you know, in the last few years is, is amazing. How did you get out of movie jail? Uh, Bridesmaids got me out of movie jail. Yeah, it was. But I mean, uh, you got out of movie jail by. I mean, obviously, the success of Bridesmaids was great, but you also got to make Bridesmaids. Judd had called me up about Bridesmaids. It wasn't even called Bridesmaids back then, in like 2007, which was right after I had done uh, Unaccompanied Minors. And um, it was nice. It was like uh, immediately getting another chance, which was great. And I, I was all through that movie, I just kept referring to it as Strike Three, you know, because I just knew <laughs> he, it's either going to work or I'm going to literally be just six feet under after this thing. 
besides the fact that you're um, a nice guy and uh, you know talented guy, and mm-hmm. you had demonstrated that you were a skilled craftsperson, and you were friends with Judd Apatow, the executive producer of the movie, yeah. Why do you think it was you particularly who uh, directed Bridesmaids? Um, I'm a very feminine-brained man. I mean, all my friends growing up were girls. I'm just more comfortable around women. Everything I've developed, you know, I mean, even Freaks and Geeks. I mean, the character I related to the most, even though Sam Weir was based on me, was Lindsay Weir. I mean, that was my outlet for everything I was going through Mm -hmm. in my 30s. And she was really the lead character of, of the show. Yeah, oh, very much so. I mean, she was my favorite character to write by far. I just, I just have a very feminine take on the world. I think I'm not comfortable with guy humor. I'm, 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 I'm never comfortable when guys are just like hurling insults at each other. I like the the comedy of, of funny women because it's 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 a little warmer, but it's also it can be goofier sometimes, and it's a little more playful, which I like. And I just find funny women just make me laugh more than more than anybody. I think. Let's take a listen to a scene from Bridesmaids, which was directed by my guest Paul Feig. Um, so in this scene, Annie, who is played by Kristen Wiig, who also uh, co-wrote the script, is on a flight to Las Vegas for a bachelorette party. And she is basically high as a kite on a broad variety of medications <laughs> yeah. and also having had a few drinks. Um, and she's... Uh, She's just wandering around the airplane <laughs> while it's flying. Miss? Um, no, it's not me. Yes, it is you. Please go back to your seat. Yes, I'm with him. I'm, uh, I'm Mrs. Iglesias. Uh, Mrs. Iglesias? Uh, no, you're not. You were just out here and you put sunglasses on. Out. But I don't want to. <laughs> Sir, she can have my seat, okay? Everyone should experience first class at least once in their lives, and Annie shouldn't miss out just because she can't afford it. No, ma'am, I'm afraid that's not allowed. Help me, I'm poor. No, listen, we're a whole wedding party. I'm I'm the bride. I'm getting married. The seat's empty. She's obviously nervous. We'll calm her down a bit. You know what? I understand, but Claire's right. Everybody go back to your seats. Okay, you especially. You have three seconds to get back to your seat. Oh, you can't get anywhere in three seconds. Well... You better try. You're setting me up for a loss already. Okay, thank you. Whatever you say, stove. It's Steve. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I forgot about that joke. Oh my god! Who is funnier than Kristen Wiig? She's just so hilarious. basically the funniest. Per- well, I mean, she is one of the five or eight funniest people. Oh my god! Totally. That whole scene kind of came out of the the thing. I was just basically like, I want to see you be hilarious, you know. And it was originally they were actually supposed to get to Vegas and all this crazy stuff happened to Vegas. But we didn't want to take on the hangover. You know, Jed and I was like, why would we take that on? They did it so well. My idea is just going to like, let's just have her never get there. Were you self-aware while you were making the movie that you were making a different sort of movie that other people had not really made before i was aware that we were doing something that was very female heavy and that's something that doesn't normally get made and i was kind of made aware of it more by people around me like i have a friend uh, jamie denbo who's a writer a very good writer and she um had a, a woman's movie script at some company and was told well we got to wait and see what bridesmaids does and it's like wow that's really all the pressures on this one movie which is ridiculous you know it's not like when the hangover was coming out like oh, if this doesn't work no more movies with guys you know but but somehow it's just the way that the business is structured and they can tell you a million different business models of you know the- I mean the good news is that both bridesmaids and the hangover were a success so yeah. we still have movies yeah, see, it all worked out. So, But if the heat doesn't do well, it's all going to fall apart. So please support me. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny because I think that Bridesmaids has a lot of elements in common with other movies in the uh, world of Judd Apatow executive productions and directions, <laughs> right. which is to say it has a big thing where the people are going to tell each other about, you know, a crazy gross part. Yeah. And it's, and it's about this group of friends, you know, learning how to really be friends in the adult world. And mm-hmm. it's about people staring down their, the fact that they have to become responsible members of society and, yeah. and trying to deal with it and, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, it is uh, ladies, and ladies also relate to them each other very differently than dudes do. Yeah, yeah. You know, I just saw This is the End, which is really funny. Yeah, really funny. Um, and it's like the dudiest dude movie I've ever seen in my <laughs> entire know, exactly. life. But and, and there are models for that. But there were precious few for you 
and yeah. your collaborators when you were making Bridesmaids. Well, I, which I like. I mean, I actually like kind of having it to be a, a wide open field. But, you know, storytelling is storytelling. And so, you know, the stakes still have to be there. The character still has to be there. The, the three-act structure still has to be there. But then it was fun within that to make it real Look, it's the way that, you know, Judd works, and I I work this way too, which is you try to find people who are funny, who are also good at improvising, or at least with a looseness where you can kind of surprise them and they can surprise you. Because then, you know, you never deviate too far from the script structure. You know, I'm not a believer in that improv. Like, just do what you want, because then you can't use it. It's just a mess. The improv, when we say that, is sometimes just like, rephrase this, or surprise her with a line, or like, here's a joke, or try this, try that. And what it does is it gets people talking in their own voices. And so that's, I think, the, I really think at the end of the day, the power of, of Bridesmaids was the fact that these were women talking like women. A lot of that stuff was kind of freeformed out of versions of the script on the set with these, you know, really funny women. I'm cross-shooting it, so I'm, I'm getting both sides of the conversation at the same time. So it's coming up very natural. We're not trying to recreate jokes. And I think... You know, that was the nicest compliment you always hear is kind of like women saying, like, that's like me and my friends. We talk that way. And and when you watch a lot of romantic comedies or movies themed, you know, towards women, they're very overwritten and everybody's very clever or they're talking in a way that people don't talk. You know, and that's what I, I think I really hate things that just sound written, you know, and it doesn't mean things shouldn't be written. It's just it's up to the writer and then the director and then the cast and everybody to make it their own. I want to play another scene from your new movie, The Heat. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and my my guest is Paul Feig, who's, who's the director of The Heat, uh, um, Bridesmaids and various other things. Um, it stars Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy. Mm-hmm. They are, uh, you know, a, a classic buddy cop pair. And in this scene, they're trying to get this uh, perp to give them some information. <laughs> and they have him hung over the side of a fire escape by his ankles. Right. Surprise, man. Come on, man. Listen, I don't know what y'all doing here. I'm out the game. What part of I'm out do you not understand? I'm out. You want to go out? We'll take you out. I don't know. You're getting awfully heavy, Rowan. Lie to me again. I want to feel your body sliding through my delicate hands. Okay, okay. Is that a warehouse on Summer Street? I'm almost disappointed. Get me out. All right, let's pull him up. Okay. No, wait. I'm not kidding anymore. Uh, really. I can't lift him up. What? No. I can't lift him. Lift my ass up. <sighs> Just tuck your head and relax your body. Lady, what the? F- God, crap! Give me a crap! Give me a crap! Ah. He's all right, right? The, the the metal car broke his fall. It, I think this is it, this is a really interesting film to me because it is such a crowd pleaser. <laughs> Did you feel like, hey, maybe I could make a genre movie because this is 100% a genre movie yeah. that, and it's a genre that people like mm. and we could just succeed by doing it really good. Also, it's ladies. Yeah. Oh, I mean, that that honestly was the whole genesis for it. I mean, I, I'm really – I would love to do every genre I can just with putting women in it, but not in a stunty way, just in a way you go like you just tell the story differently. And you know, Katie Dippel, who wrote the script, and when it was sent to me, it's one of the funniest scripts I ever read. But what I loved about it was the fact that it was not like – you go like, oh, this could either be two guys or two women. It like was very specifically written from a woman's point of view about professional women in the in the workplace, and it just seemed like the perfect opportunity to have this crossover to men and women, where we, we weren't pandering to eat to either one, you know, because there's no jokes like, oh, I broke my nail, or I don't know how to hold, how to hold a gun. I really responded to the idea of. Professional women who are great at their jobs, who have kind of dedicated themselves to the workforce and kind of foregone having a traditional family and and a traditional marriage and how they kind of find their support group. Because, you know, my wife, you know, is professional and and she's had trouble over the years kind of finding best friends because, you know, just everybody's got a different thing going on. And and so that that to me was sort of the emotional core of it. At one point, you know, Sandra just has a line where she's like, it's really hard to make female friends. And and I, I... I like that. I like that theme, and I just wanted them to be to to be women, kind of having problems and not having to compromise their lives. It was never about should I get married, should I not. It's like no, you're just great at your job, but now you need a friend. You know, I like romantic comedies. I like romance, but at the same time, it's it's just 
everybody comes off kind of weak in them, I think, especially women just always naturally, I don't know, don't, don't come off at their best. No, it's mostly the women are weak and the men are insane. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and I love Sandra so much, and I've always wanted to work with her, and it was thrilling to know that she was interested in this because it's like, no, let's take, we, we're peeling all that stuff away. She, there's like a little flirtation, mini flirtation with Marlon Wayans, but that's so not the drive of it. It's more just to kind of show like, oh, guys are really into her, you know? It, it was fun because she, you know, because we still really deconstruct her. That was the sort of the most fun part of it is like, she's uptight. She's great at her job, but she's still, she's so kind of occasionally insufferable that she needs to be taken down a few pegs and, and learn how to work with other people. But then beyond that, you know, she's still good at her job, but uh, we do put her through it. Well, Paula, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on the show again. It's it's always great to talk to you. Thank you, Jesse. I'm, I'm thrilled, and I can't believe seven years went by. Let's not let that happen again, sir. Paul Feig's hilarious and action-packed new movie is called The Heat. It's out June 28th. Every week on Bullseye, we talk to one of our favorite culture critics to recommend pop culture worth your time. This week, we're joined by Emily Nussbaum, TV critic for The New Yorker. Hey, Emily. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Let's get right into discussing these shows. Uh, the first one is a new show called Orange is the New Black from uh, Genji Cohen, who's the creator of Weeds, the long-running Showtime show that, that just came to its conclusion. So tell me a little bit about what the show's about. Well, Orange is the New Black is uh, one of the new shows coming out on Netflix, and it's based on a memoir by a writer named Piper Kerwin, who went to prison for a year for drug smuggling. And she was a white, preppy girl from an upper-middle-class background. And I have to say, when I started watching the show, I worried that it was going to be a kind of tourist-in-prison kind of thing. But it's actually a brilliant show. I mean, it's it's smart and daring and gonzo and funny, and it's essentially something like the old HBO prison drama Oz crossed with the L word. <laughs> Oz was a much more violent setting. She's not in a maximum security prison, and even though there are people there who have committed violent crimes, and there's violent stuff that happens, and there's suggestions of sexual violence, and there's all sorts of power plays. It's not quite the intensity of what happens in Oz, but it is comparable in a way because Oz was also about somebody who never expected to go to prison being thrown in and suddenly having to deal with complete strange takeover of their lives. But um, partially because it's a women's prison and it has a slightly different tone, it's not uh, lighthearted about what's actually going on, but uh, it's an interestingly humane show. I'm curious how people respond to it because it does have a very shocking side, but I just found the performances great and it, it excited me to see the whole season. Emily, your other recommendation this week is Inside Amy Schumer, which uh, is a sketch show on Comedy Central that just got renewed for a, a second season. A Amy Schumer's a stand-up comedian whose last stand-up special was called uh, Amy Schumer, mostly sex stuff, if I recall correctly. She's a real up-and-comer, and this show has been a, a, a mid-level hit for Comedy Central. Tell me what you like about it. Yeah, I was excited to see this. Um, a, a lot of comedies start really slow, and even good stuff, I often am hesitant to weigh in on the first few episodes. And this is not a show that's going to be for everyone, mostly because it is filthy. I mean, the sex thing is really her thing. She's really daring kamikaze kind of performer. And it reminded me watching it of like what seems to be going on on TV a lot, which is the rise of a lot of female creators who are making characters who aren't necessarily adorable and lovable. And in this case, Amy does female sex topics in a way that initially just seems uh, potentially crass, but then turns surreal and strange stuff about getting a four-handed massage, stuff about a bachelor party where people start competing over vibrators. There's a lot of stuff about porn. One of my favorite ones is actually not all that sexual. It's just a group of female friends who get in kind of an arms race about refusing to take compliments from one another. Amy! Hi! hi. hi. I love your hat. Uh, are you drunk? I look like an Armenian man. People are trying to buy carpets from me. 
I have to say, it has a shockingly high hit rate given that subject matter. Because when you work blue in that way, there's a way in which you can easily lean into cliche. And I feel like in so many of the skits, she just finds really rich material. And a lot of it is because she just seems very unashamed and somebody who does really interesting kinds of material about female lives that I haven't seen that much in comedy. Emily Nussbaum is the TV critic for The New Yorker. You can find her writing in the pages of that magazine and, of course, at newyorker.com. Her recommendations, Orange is the New Black, the new series on Netflix, and the TV show on Comedy Central, Inside Amy Schumer. Thanks, Emily. Thank you. Happy summer, everybody. Griffin McElroy here, the youngest of the McElroy brothers. I'm Travis McElroy, the middlest brother. And I'm beloved performer, Jimmy Buffett. He is not. But we do do a podcast together called My Brother and My Brother. I mean, it's a comedy advice show. You can find it at mbmbam.com, maximumfun.org, or just search for it on iTunes. I love you, Sacramento! You're not, you're not even on a stage. Griffin, are you watching the shrimp? They're beginning to boil. So join us this summer as we waste an hour of your life that you'll never get back ever again. You know, I know something about wasting away again in Margaritaville. I'm beloved. I know you are. Are you looking to escape your troubles? Hop on a boat with Maria Bamford, Mark Marin, John Hodgman, Dan Deacon, and a ton of other comedians and musicians. It's the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival, September 13th through 16th. Set sail from Miami into the Bahamas for three nights of music, comedy, and yes, shuffleboard. Book your tickets now online at BoatParty.biz. The Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival, sponsored by MaximumFun.org, Split Cider, KCRW, and MailChimp. I'll see you on the high seas. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Comedian Ophira Eisenberg knew it from her first kiss. She liked dudes. She enjoyed their company. And she later found out that she, you know enjoyed their company. Her new book, Screw Everyone, Sleeping My Way to Monogamy, is about her many gentlemanly indulgences, as well as a few ungentlemanly indulgences, like the guy who was doing meth when she thought he was brushing his teeth so his breath would smell nice when they made out. Here she is on the stand-up stage talking about her pre-marriage experimentations with online dating. I did do a lot. I did a lot of online dating, and uh, it's to write that profile, a marketing document about yourself, impossible. And then you have to put up a picture. And then on the site I was on, you were supposed to put a couple words under your picture, like a tagline, to get people interested in checking you out, right? And I just did not know how to describe myself in a couple of words. I'm like, I'm in my 30s. I've kind of been around the block, you know. <laughs> what do I put? So finally, I just put, as is. (laughs) A real fixer-upper, yeah. (laughs) Hobbies include depression. (laughs) And making you guess why I'm angry. (laughs) These days, Ophira Eisenberg settled down both in her private life, she's happily married, and in her career, she's hosting NPR's quiz and puzzle show, Ask Me Another. How She Got There makes for fascinating reading. Ophira, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Jesse. Is it fair of me to characterize the state of your marriage as happy? Yes. uh, So far, so good. You know, uh, they say it's, uh, what, 50% survival rate in these things? Yeah. So so far. You're beating (laughs) the odds, or you're you're running even with the odds. Yeah. Um, so a, a lot of times these uh, a relationship memoir is structured as um, you know a, a series of detours on the road to an inevitable conclusion, which is a happy marriage. Sort right. of you know as as yeah. in any romantic comedy or whatever. Um, when you were having the uh, romantic adventures and, and misadventures that you describe in your book, did you see yourself as being on the path to marriage? Was that your goal? Absolutely not. <laughs> Seriously, absolutely not. A matter of fact, uh, just to take a step back, when I originally conceived this book, I was really uh, – I, tr- I it had a whole different format. I saw it as something called Points for Trying, and it was all about <laughs> failures. Uh, but, you know, when I actually talked to someone who knew how to sell a book, an, an agent, they were like, yeah, that's not going to work. 
So, but I, I was really against ending it with the happy. I had to re- take a long. It took me a long time to wrap my head around agreeing that I was going to end the book with the happy marriage, even if it was a true story or a decent way, you know, a formulaic way that you do this. Uh, but while I was dating, I grew up never like going against that. Uh, as hard as I could, even as a young girl, all my friends, you know, these girls, they were very girly girls I knew. And everyone was like, oh, what would your wedding dress look like? And I, I was like, black. You know, I wanted nothing to do with it. I wanted nothing to do with it. And I thought that it was a – I was spouting off that it's a failed institution. You know, it's, it's created by the man to bring you <laughs> – to keep you down. Uh, and I think that was a lot based on the fact that my mother – Grew up in World War Two, and she, uh, you know, was married, had kids early, and really, I think, wanted to have a job her whole life. She thought that would have been amazing. So she drilled in my head that she was like, don't throw your life away. <laughs> Go out and uh, get a job. Do something with yourself. This is a modern world. You're, you know, that's my mother's thinking. It's a modern world. You can do whatever you want. You can we've wear got, nylons. We've got monorails. <laughs> We do have monorails. Uh, So I actually think in my heart of hearts, I believed it. But then when I did finally find the guy that I wanted to marry for a whole host of reasons, I think for the first time I understood the other side of it, which is very emotional that, uh, you know, I just had no access to before I was actually in the situation. One of the things about being married is that you have... um, you know, even when there are challenges, you have a, a lot of emotional security and you feel like, you know, you feel like there's somebody has your back. Did yeah. you Did you miss that in the years before you were in a, you know, a, a committed and, and stable relationship? Yeah, I that is a, that's deep, man. Uh, and you're <laughs> it's deep. And you're right. There was something there was certainly a security that I always missed, but I, I feel like that is that uh, there was a certain security that I kind of missed my entire life because things kept getting ripped away uh, from me. So I don't know how much I thought a guy or a partner was going to be able to provide that because I, you know, I survived this car accident when I was a kid. So I already, even as a nine-year-old, I felt like the world was not a safe place. Things could happen that were out of your control. Uh, you know, the the idea of just that invincibility was already sort of removed. Then my father died when I was a teenager. So that the figurehead of the family that kind of made us feel like we were secure because he was also the breadwinner, that was removed. So the whole thing shattered. So I think by the time I was dating, I was like, can this just be fun? <laughs> because I don't think anyone can provide here like the backbone it seems like you spent a, a lot of your younger years just kind of living somewhere for a, a little while and then moving to an entirely different place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was that all about? Uh, it was, I mean, it, it's it's very clear in hindsight because basically I started in Calgary when I broke up with the jazz musician or rather he dumped me and there was really no chance of us ever getting back together. I really was like, you know what? I don't want to see this city anymore. If I can't be with this person, I don't want to see this city anymore. And I got up and I uh, got on a plane and moved to Montreal where I went to school there. And then I was dating and then school ended and I was sort of not with anyone. And I was like, all right, well, if I can't be with anyone here, I'm going to leave this city and try something else. Move to Vancouver. That was also I had my sister living there and that was like a decent post-college place to be. And there I dated some guys and I ended up in a situation where I had a terrible breakup and didn't understand what was going on. And I was like, all right, well, time to switch cities again. (laughs) This is what I do. Just kept really like switching up the environment. And also, I think actually I really wanted to move to New York, which is where I live now. But I couldn't. I was so scared of it. It just seemed like such a huge risk to move to a different country, New York, Uh, no health care, didn't know anyone. So then I moved to Toronto, and I had a relationship there, a bunch of relationships, but the one near the end I thought was actually the real one. And when that was about to get more serious and he was like, I think we should move in together, all of a sudden I just went, I'm moving to New York. So that might be commitment issues. Like that might be me with commitment issues, which I know is sort of against gender stereotype. 
But I'm glad it kind of worked out that way. When you moved to New York City, to be a stand-up comic in New York City, yeah. how did it <laughs> how did it match up with your fears and expectations? I it was that is the hardest thing I've ever done. There was I moved here with no money. And I sort of, I, and I, I moved in secret too. It's not in the book, but it's true. I moved in secret because I was so afraid that I would fail. And there was this thing that would happen. I was living in Toronto doing stand up, and a lot of people would leave all of a sudden because they get some deal or they would get, uh, they had some potential. So they would go to New York or LA being like, see ya, suckers, you know, like heading off to the big time. And they'd throw some big party for themselves and it would be like, all right, I knew you win, blah, blah, blah. And then, as luck would have it many times the deal would fall through or the sitcom wouldn't get picked up or whatever it just didn't happen and then they'd end up back you know in a very relatively small scene of people so everyone would see them back like six months later a year later and would be like wow how was LA and they'd be like I'm back so I was so afraid of that that I decided I would move in secret. Another great idea. I really thought I could pull that off. So this is before everyone just... Before Facebook, man, you could do anything. <laughs> you could do anything. Nobody knew. I it, I told my roommate, of course, because she had to find a new roommate. And I told my boyfriend because he knew. But I literally put all my stuff in someone's basement, saying that I was uh, needing it to put it there for a little while while I moved apartments told everyone I was going on a vacation to New York, and I never came back. What was it? <laughs> and How... you know what? Nobody cared, by the way. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, no, I don't know what I thought, but everyone was just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's like you think you're so important, by the way. No, it was like, yeah, I'm fine with the fact that we didn't talk after that. That was cool. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Ophira Eisenberg, host of the NPR show Ask Me Another and the author of Screw Everyone, Sleeping My Way to Monogamy. How was dating different in New York? Uh, I always like to say it's a Sex and City is actually a documentary. I, you know, I watched that show and I, I liked it like everybody else. Like, oh, it was this ridiculous fashion and these fun characters and they all have these ritz lives. But they could never, ever get a guy, which just made zero sense, where they would have these fleeting relationships. And I was like, why is that? How is that possible? These girls would have lines down the block of guys trying to date them if they lived in Toronto. And then I got here and I was like, I'll be fine because I like hanging out and partying and, and talking to guys. But I met all these women who were these beautiful, successful, like well-dressed, very interesting women who were freaking out that there were no guys in New York. And they their self-esteems were diminished by just these these uh, lines of guys that they uh, had dated and never called them back or were kind of rude to them or pushed them aside. They were questioning everything. And it freaked me out. It freaked me out so badly. Uh, I didn't understand. I was like, what are you talking about? Do we are, are, Don't we have the power? Why don't we have the power? This is I read all this about, about this in Greek comedies. We have the power. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, no, we don't have the power. And there was a, I don't know if this statistic was true, but they... When I moved to New York, people claimed that there was uh, five women for every one guy. So that can't also... possibly be true. <laughs> That's what they. Everyone used to say that. Everyone used to say that. Like it was maybe it was a justification, or or maybe it was true. Who knew? Maybe, but it... maybe they counted at the peak of World War II, <laughs> and they just kept erasing the date and putting yeah. in a new one. <laughs> I think probably the your lowest point in a book that frankly is full of low points <laughs> is that's how I planned it is going home sort of uh, or going to going home and going to bed with a fellow comic after a show yeah <laughs> maybe yeah. maybe you could share that with us sure uh well you know so i would go out to these road gigs and i was completely out of my element and when i say road gigs i mean like 10 15 miles away this is not like i was across the country but they were just in jersey or long island or pennsylvania connecticut and then i i just bomb it was a mess 
and I went to the back of this little club uh, and I had a drink and I'm watching the headliner and he's up there, this guy, young guy, cute guy, but he's killing, killing. And we finish and I'm watching him and I'm thinking, you know what? I feel really bad about myself, but why don't I try to hit on this guy? Because that will be fun, adventure, something to look forward to. Maybe we'll connect. And then he does really well. I'm like, this is going to be easy. So we uh, we end up in his uh, car that he uh, and driving back to New York. And he we're doing total this conversation that I love. I really do miss this. It's a conversation you have with a one-night stand or someone you have no investment in when you're just trying to keep everything light and happy and you don't really care about the answers to their questions. Like, I was like, really? You've never had a bank account? That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, screw the man. You're right. And I was like, oh, he was like, I, he told me that he uh, had spent some time in a mental institution. I was like, ha, 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 you're crazy. Yeah. It's because you're smart and creative, man. The world can't handle you. <laughs> Just, you know, and he's like, my grandfather was in the SS. I'm like, I am Jewish. How interesting. Uh, so we drive to Queens. We get to his house. We climb down the stairs because he's a, he's got a bachelor pad in the basement of a Greek family's home. And there's not much decor. There's a frame photo of a sports car. I do remember that. <laughs> <laughs> like a Lamborghini or something. Uh, and he, the door to his bedroom is closed. It's just a bachelor pad, very sparse, except for that little piece of decor. And he puts his hand on the doorknob and he says to me, would you like to see something special, basically? And I, at the time, was like, yeah. I mean, how stupid was I? But I was like, yeah, that would be fun. And then as he's opening the door, all of a sudden my brain is going, wait a second. I don't know this guy. What am I dealing with? Uh, you know, is it another man? Is it a hooded gimped guy? Is it bunk beds? Like, what am I dealing with? And then he opens the door. And this guy is about 35 years old. His whole room, his room was just filled, stacked with Garfields. Just Garfields <laughs> upon Gar, Like, stuffed Garfields, little ceramic Garfields in Garfield poses. Like, when they'd make little Garfield golfing. Garfield uh, angry. Garfield with a little black chapeau. Poet Garfield. And a huge one on his bed wearing Mardi Gras beads for some reason. (laughs) Presumably it took off its top. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I was like, do I get one if I do well? Like, I didn't really understand how this worked. Was there an exchange? Are you saying that you thought you might be at a carnival? (laughs) Yeah, there was a ride. Was I the ride? Is he the ride? How is this working? And then, you know, should I, like, try to go for one of the bigger ones? So I said to him, uh, you know, I was trying to, like, figure it out, trying to normalize it. It's one of my tactics with crazy situations, trying to normalize it. So I was like, oh, why do you have Garfields? That seems like an okay question, right? (laughs) And he was like, I've been collecting them since college. It's not an answer. (laughs) It's not an answer. That is not an answer. And I remember him, like, telling me all the different places he moved since college. And I'm picturing him, like, wrapping up every little precious Garfield, like, move after move and putting them in a liquor box to be uh, sent to the next place. So I told him to take three out of his room, the three big ones, (laughs) because that was my idea of, like, you know, having some standards. So he took the three big ones out and... uh, I still slept with them, and it was terrible. It was the worst. I want to play uh, another stand-up clip um, of of you, my guest, Ophira Eisenberg. This is you performing on uh, the Craig Ferguson show, and, and you're talking about marriage. <laughs> but I, I do love being married. I will say that I really thought my marriage was going to be different than everybody else's. I thought it was going to be unique, and that is hilarious. Because <laughs> you end up in the same marriage as every other couple. And I get that now. I totally understand it. And if I was ever out there dating again, next time, I am asking different questions. <laughs> I'm not going to be like, what kind of music do you listen to? What's your relationship like with your mom? I'm just going to ask, do you put your crap away? <laughs> How do you feel like your life has been changed by marriage outside of the obvious part where when you go home, there's someone there for you that you like? Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's surprisingly positive. So, you know, at the very beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Marriage, colon, surprisingly positive. (laughs) You know, at the beginning when you talked about that security, 
So, okay, so there is that feeling that there is, you know, Team Ophira, or my husband's name is Jonathan, so occasionally, you know, there's also Team Jonathan, depending on who it needs. But there's also, uh, like, these larger philosophical concepts that I didn't have any access to understanding before that now I understand. There's there's some uh, empathy I have for people <laughs> that I didn't have before. But, you know, things like... True loyalty and I, friendship loyalty has always been very important to me. But this is a very different kind of loyalty that is very important to me. And I prize very highly in a way that I didn't understand before. And actually that I didn't even think existed or under like when you, when I was talking about like, oh, I just didn't see how you could stay with anyone. Like, I hope everything works out as well as it's working out now forever. I understand things change that I can't foresee. That is the nature of life. But I'm hoping and I really I really am into that goal. Uh, and also, you know, uh, on the really cheesy romantic level, there there's that idea people say, you know, in movies, they'd be like, I love you more yesterday, today than I did yesterday. If <laughs> I love you more yesterday than I did today. That's that's the relationship going in the wrong direction. <laughs> uh, but I was like, what does that mean? That is just ridiculous. But there are times that you know someone more and that actually increases your love for them. So there, that's like. That's some of the nicest shit I've ever said. Oh, my God. Thank you, Jesse. That was like therapy. It's like positive therapy. Well, Ophir, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Ophira Eisenberg's new book is called Screw Everyone, Sleeping My Way to Monogamy. She's also the host of NPR's uh, trivia and puzzle game show, Ask Me Another, which you can hear on public radio stations around the country and uh, online at npr.org. We like to close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. Look, I'm no chef. This week, though, I do want to recommend a cookbook to you. I think it might help you as much as it helps me. It's Mark Bittman's How to Cook Everything. If you don't know Bittman from his column and his videos in the New York Times, he bills himself as the minimalist. His cooking philosophy is simple. When you're not a professional chef, you shouldn't bother trying to make souffle every night. Instead, just focus on eating tasty ingredients cooked simply and quickly. It's a wonderful rejoinder, I think, to, to the folks who want you to create restaurant food at home, and even more so to the folks who think that simple home cooking means a bunch of cans and, and ketchup. It's about stuff that tastes wonderful that's actually real and completely achievable. For example, croutons. I had no idea how amazing croutons are until Mark Bittman pitched them. Here's how you make croutons the Bittman way. You cut up some tasty bread. Old bread is fine. You put some olive oil in a pan and heat it up until it glistens but doesn't smoke. You throw in some smushed garlic, maybe four or five cloves. Let that brown a little. Then you toss the bread in the oil. You salt and pepper it pretty generously. Maybe add some other spice if you want. You flip the bread when it starts to get golden, and uh, they all cook up in a couple minutes. Just pull them out when they look done. And then, once they've been pulled out, do everything in your power not to eat every single delicious one before they even hit the greens in your salad. Seriously, they are the most delicious thing ever. So, 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 so good. And completely 1,000% doable by a human being. Why not make your life better for once? Mark Bittman, How to Cook Everything. Croutons. Do it. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our editor this week was Chris Berube. Interstitial music provided to us by Dan Wally. Bullseye's theme music is provided by The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. You can also subscribe free to our podcast. The podcast often features longer versions of every week's interviews. Be sure to go to BoatParty.biz if you'd like to join us for the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival. Lots of comedians and musicians and me all on a boat with you this September. That's BoatParty.biz. And I do have one more thing to say about BoatParty.biz. Uh, the last few weeks on the show, I've taken this opportunity at the end of the program in the credits to invite Mark McGrath, uh, formerly of the band Sugar Ray, 
on our cruise. Uh, long story short, I made his cruise our rival cruise, and then a few days later, he had to shut his cruise down, and I feel sort of responsible. And, you know, I've seen him on Rock and Roll Jeopardy. He seems like a nice guy. So, Mark, if you're out there, you can come to BoatBarty.biz. The invitation is open. I will pay your way. Me personally. I think you'll have a good time. I really do hope I'll hear from you. I mean, we're on NPR. A lot of people are listening. One of you people must know Mark McGrath. Let him know. I'm reaching out here. Jesse at MaximumFun.org is my email address, Mark McGrath make this happen that's about it just remember all great radio hosts have a signature sign off Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.